1: and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the historian Christopher de Belegue, whose new book is The Lion House, The Coming of a King. And the king in question is Suleiman the Magnificent. We're right back in the early 16th century. Christopher, really dumb and obvious question, but what was so magnificent about Suleiman?
0: Well, he only got called magnificent much later on but he was fairly magnificent at the time. He inherited a, an empire that had been expanded hugely, enormously by his father, Selim the Grim. In just eight years, he'd basically almost tripled the size of the empire and just about doubled the number of its subjects. So Suleiman came at a propitious time and he survived on the throne from 1520 to 1566, which makes him a very long ruler by any measure, but particularly by the measures of the time. And he expanded that territory even further. He struck terror into Christian Europe and he expanded eastwards because the thing about the, any Turkish empire and the Ottoman Empire is no different is that you have to be, uh, you have to have eyes in the back of your head. So you have to look east as well as west. And so he was essentially he spent the first sort of twenty odd years of his reign campaigning on on both fronts in the course of these campaigns he amassed enormous lucre and he spent the lucre certainly at the beginning of his reign on a lot of bling and very high quality bling, so there was a lot of enormously sort of show y events and ceremonials that took place and which he used to show off to, in particular, to his main rival, who was Charles V, the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor. So by that measure, he was fairly magnificent. His revenues were almost uncountable. They were so massive. He had taxes. He got a special tax from the non-Muslims in his domain. He had enormous amounts of prize money from various campaigns. He had mines. He had agriculture, uh, so he was magnificent from that perspective as well, the perspective of sheer revenue and wealth. And then finally, as, as we will discover, uh, not in The Lion House, but in, in later volumes, he was magnificent because he was a force for stability and he was a force for centralization that essentially consolidated Ottoman rule around certain things, the law and a sort of standardised version of Sunni Islam that he instituted. As I say, he was named Magnificent by later historians, and so it would be anachronistic to call him Suleiman the Magnificent in in his own lifetime. But he was deemed to be pretty magnificent even then.
1: Now, can I start by by sort of asking you to sketch a little bit, because you, of course, he's at the centre of this story, but it's a picture of the world as well. I mean, you begin, and I'm intrigued by this, with not, you know, the port in you know, Constantinople, Istanbul, but in Venice. And, you know, there's this sort of sense of a connection and of a really complex sort of multilateral power politics in Europe at the time. What is the view from Venice to start with? And what role does Venice play in this story? I was
0: fascinated by the the relationship between Venice and the Ottomans at this time. Venice was a declining power, uh, but still a very rich one and it was entirely dependent on Ottoman largesse and goodwill in order to carry on trading and making money. At the same time, it had to keep its end up with the Christians and say, well, we're, we're a good Catholic republic and, and we're supporting the Christians. So its position was extremely invidious, and that led to a series of politicians of great skill and mendacity who came and became doge of, of Venice, and they were particularly fascinating to me. One of them was Doge. In fact, the main one in in the Lion House is Doge Andrea Gritti, who we we follow his career in in part because, or mostly because, his son, for a strange quirk of fate, becomes the number three man in the Ottoman Empire. So he's on the other side of the of the barricades, as it were. But this 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 sense of precariousness of, of Venetian power led to the Venetians doubling down on the things that they did best and. What they did best, essentially, was gather information. And so both as a historian today looking back, one is very reliant on the Venetian reports, but also it was wonderful in the book to try and get inside that sense of Glittering, glittering Venice, but also extremely nervous Venice. So we start in in Venice with a report that is brought from Constantinople about the still relatively young and untested and an uh, unknown Sultan Suleiman, the son of Selim the Grim, who who. Um, Instilled fear in all of Europe, and the great hope was that Suleiman would be much more benign, much more peaceable, much more pacific in his in his approach. But this report says entirely the opposite. it says, we have a great deal to fear in Sultan Suleiman, and he has everything he needs in order to wage total war against us, us being Venice, but also Christendom, which was riven by divisions, not only sort of the traditional power politics but in in southern Europe, between France. And King Spain or the uh, the Holy Roman Emperor they, they sort of doubled up as as one, but also the Reformation taking place and dividing Europe in sort of unexpected ways. Suleiman was was well placed to exploit those those divisions.
1: Yes, I mean Henry the Eighth appears off stage as almost complete irrelevance, doesn't it?
0: Yes, I have enormous respect for Tudor historians, and I love Tudor history, but it is salutary to be reminded that Henry VIII was an entire, almost entirely, an, irrele- an irrelevance in this theatre.
1: Now, you mentioned the, this initial report, the sort of intelligence report that goes back to to Venice, saying, you know, we have much to hear from Suleiman, but as I mean as you say later in the book, you know, he was made from softer clay than his father. Now, his father is an absolutely hair-raising figure. He obviously merits the, the suffix grim. I mean, what, what was the relationship there? I mean, I can't help but see it a little bit through the, through the lens of succession and Logan Roy. It wasn't obvious, was it, that Suleiman was going to be the, the one to inherit in any case?
0: I, I think we can, we can infer from Suleiman's behaviour that he was terrified of his father, in awe of his, terif- of his father, wished to be slightly different from his father. His father was in, in, extraordinarily ruthless, pious to the point of aridity. His son at least starts as rather enjoying life. So hence, he, he likes to have a drink, he likes to have quite a lot of sex. He enjoys campaigning for the sake of campaigning. He loves picking up loot. All the things that a young prince you would expect to enjoy, he enjoys. And I think that he he was animated by, in part, by this desire to step out of the shadow of his tremendously important father and be his own man. In doing so, he found himself reliant on a group of courtiers around him whom he gathered around him in opposition to the courtiers he inherited from his father. And it is these courtiers that essentially form the main characters of the book, because they are so extraordinary. They come from a variety of different backgrounds, none of them Turkish, none of them Muslim, and they end up wielding enormous power. And so the second question with respect to Suleiman is this. Is he despite being Lord of Lords, Master of the Celestial Conjunction, his list of titles goes on for several pages if you want to list them all. Is is that person actually powerful, or is he in fact a plaything, the plaything of his courtiers and his consort?
1: Well, there's that line, I mean, which which comes back somewhat to the title of your book, you know, The Lion House. The number one courtier, who I... I love to hear you talk a bit more about known as the Frank Ibrahim Pasha who starts out as a slave he comes from the Christian world he's not you know and it is so dear to Suleiman that he compares himself at one point I think doesn't he to being a lion tamer yes he's in charge of Suleiman I mean I don't know whether that's hubris or whether you think that's an accurate read well it was certainly an, an impression he wanted to give and I think there was an element of truth to it
0: I think the, the way that Ibrahim came from nowhere, literally a boy playing on a beach, to being picked up by pirates, kidnapped, found his way into the household of a rich widow, was, was very well educated, caught the um, then crown prince's attention. They became intensely close friends, probably bedfellows, and then being brought along to Istanbul in order to, to kind of provide support for the young sultan against the old, the old courtiers who are already there. That can only induce in someone a sense of God-given destiny. The idea that you are that person, I think most people would struggle to fend off a degree of hubris and, and overconfidence. And indeed, Ibrahim does have um, marked qualities that make him one of the leading diplomatic figures in Europe, an extraordinarily powerful and reputed figure that everyone who wants to get to see or wants the Sultan's ear must address themselves to, see, to Ibrahim when they arrive in Istanbul. He also becomes a general. He also becomes an administrator. And so he turns to the Habsburg embassies that come again and again seeking a truce, or to the Venetians, his friends, because he was born a Venetian citizen. And he boasts, And we have, a lot of the book is really made up of of my manipulation of verbatim conversations. And a lot of the conversations concern Ibrahim telling his uh, Western interlocutors just how important and powerful he is, just how the Sultan can do nothing without his say-so. And there there is a point where he turns to the Habsburg embassy and he says to them, I have a theory, it's about a lion. The lion is all in, is very powerful, but the lion tamer can make him cringe by holding a big stick, and he can toss him bits of meat. And ultimately, it's the lion tamer who controls things. Who controls things, not the lion. And I am the lion tamer.
1: Yeah. Was his relationship with Suleiman one you'd characterize as romantic or even sexual? I mean, that maybe is something you'd have to read between the lines. But I'm I'm interested in how you you, you don't. As far as I could tell, you're not explicit about it in the book.
0: I I try not to be explicit about a lot of things that I cannot be fully explicit about. And that's really the style in which the book is, is written. It's written from the perspective of the primary sources. And so when I say that one of the jealous Pashas who was jealous of Ibrahim calls him the Sultan's whore, then we we make that inferral. When another of the Venetian reports say that they share a bed and that Ibrahim and he exchange tender poems, then we draw an inferral from that. But I'm... I'm, I I I don't want to clutter the book with long kind of interpretations of that because actually what I'm trying to do is tell a story and in some ways remove the historian from the equation I want the history to do the talking and so I, I don't go deep into interpretations I try and present the facts in in a kind of in an as attractive way as
1: possible and then let the kind of let the narrative do the do the work yeah I, I, I mean on that question of the stylistic decisions you've made. It's quite, you know, the narrative voice of this book is quite unusual for a conventional history. You know, it does have sort of a lot of what, you know, theorists sometimes call thick description. You know, you're deeply in the world and it's got a sort of almost novelistic quality to it and you've divided it into sort of five acts. What were you aiming to do? What sort of sort of book were you trying to produce in that way well i started off my
0: proposal was for a very conventional book and then lockdown happened and i was denied that sort of historians hit, hinterland that you get from going out and having coffee with people and and talking about your book and then giving you ideas about the areas that they're interested in and then you build up this kind of wider perspective this very broad perspective that allows you as a historian to then make judgments and then you have a you conventionally would have a a long introduction telling the addressing the the reader saying what you're intending to do with this book why it's different from the books that came before and then interspersed among the narrative you would have cross-references to other periods of history, you would be constantly reminding the reader that they are in reading from the 21st century, warning them of the pitfalls, but also saying that we know this now and they didn't know that then. All of that sort of hindsight and that 2020 vision that the historian has, I was denied. I wasn't able to run my hand down the section of the library and pick things out at random. All I was was closeted away with these primary sources. And the fact, that I was writing it during lockdown, I think contributes to the slightly claustrophobic and oppressive kind of character of the book. And I didn't have any idea what I was trying to do at the time, I just found that it was natural to do so. Another stylistic decision that wasn't really a decision was to write in the present tense. I, I started off just taking notes, and they happened to be in the present. And when I came to turn those notes into a kind of finished chapter, they remained in the present. But that also kind of went hand in hand with what I was trying to do, which, as you say, was to put the reader into the moment. And so those things came together to produce this, the the stylistic kind of
1: atmosphere that the book has. And these primary sources, I mean, how rich are they? How close are we able to get to Suleiman? For instance, I mean, extraordinary to me, you just, Drop in here and there, you know. Suleiman wrote this down in his diary. I mean, do we still have these these journals? And how much of an insight do they give you into? So we have his, we have snip,
0: we have snippets of diary. We have about eight or ten letters that he exchanged with his consort Hurem, and I use those letters. Uh, I I use them as much as I possibly could. We have Turkish chroniclers who were there on the campaigns who are describing what is happening. Uh, we have Venetian reports. Written in the present tense, written about the here and now, some of them, you know, among the finest examples of diplomatic reporting that, that, I've, that I've ever seen. Um, we have Habsburg reports, sending letters back to Ferdinand, um, the Archduke of Austria, the younger brother of, of Charles V. Also describing the various humiliations that Ibrahim visited upon them, you have analysis of the of the Turkish military dispositions where they are militarily, where they are on land and on sea. For Hayreddin Pasha, who's the big pirate who comes into the book in in sort of in the latter stages and becomes a kind of hero of, of one act, uh, we have a an eyewitness report by one of his shipmates describing exactly how he waged. Holy War, and a lot of that just gets manipulated into my into into the into the narrator's account, very often without quotations or direct speech marks because they are it is manipulated. But at the same time, a lot of what they say is kind of rendered, and so there's stuff there's stuff from a very kind of demotic Turkish that comes in. There's the Venetian Italian stuff. There's the the, the German and some, some of the Latin that is written by the, dipl- the, the dipl- diplomats at the time. And so this, this restriction I found myself under became, for me, a, a kind of virtue.
1: Yeah. Now, these wars, of which you know, <laughs> there, are, there are many, or campaigns at least in the course of the, the novel, is there a sort of decisive shape to Suleiman's ambitions or was he simply trying to stabilize and extend his areas of influence in a particular way i mean one of the things early on you talk about this vision he had of a kind of golden apple or it's a mythological trope he's he's picked up on what you know what was the sort of golden apple for Suleiman
0: the golden apple was something that every that every Turk grew up with it was this this vision of defeat of of Christendom and fathomless riches and where the Golden Apple actually resided was a matter of debate and conjecture. It might have been Cologne, it might have been Rome, but it was certainly in a, in a part of of, um, of Western Europe that the Ottomans then did not control. But it's important to remember that, that Suleiman was animated by, A, his rivalry with Charles V, who also had pretensions to being a world sovereign, and that's exactly what Suleiman had, but also by his apprehension that the Christians would try and take back Constantinople and and that the, the fall of Constantinople in fourteen fifty three was a humiliation from which Christendom, you know, never fully recovered. And there were constant there was constant talk of a new crusade, of a new mustering of the pan European armies in order to take back Constantinople. So in his aggressive posture and his aggressive campaign, Suleiman was also was also being defensive. That was the 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 pattern for the per for the first sort of ten years of his reign when he came into Austria and on two or three occasions found that his supply lines were stretched found that if the German princes mobilized he simply wouldn 't be able to get any further. It was always autumn it was always getting frosty his men were always getting cold and hungry, and it was really always time to go back to Istanbul by the time they re- they reached Vienna that induced a kind of you know willy-nilly it was a kind of line in the sand beyond which the the Ottomans really couldn't properly entertain plans of going further forward so at that stage the the kind of theater of operations and the the sea the, the locus of this rivalry between him and Charles V shifts to the Mediterranean and so you have these incredible actions in Algiers and in Tunis and in the Balearic Islands of Spain, and you have hired in Barbarossa, the great pirate who becomes the Ottoman Grand Admiral, causing terror among Christian shipping. And at the same time, you have the sheer forces of of Safavid Iran being a nuisance on the eastern flank. And this, they were a nuisance in two ways. They were a nuisance first because. Doctrinally, they were absolutely anathema to Ottoman Sunnism, and they needed to be put back in their box very firmly. The Shiites? Yes, otherwise their, their poisonous ideology as Suleiman saw it would spread into Turkey and um, threaten the right way of, of, of doing Islam. And also because they were a strategic threat and you couldn't have someone, you know, in your, in your kind of deep hinterland, constantly attacking, constantly taking castles. And so that was also big
1: theater. Yeah, just sort of parenthetically, one of those early campaigns, you know, the one you, that ends famously with the sort of failed siege of Vienna, quite early on in his career. He does before he gets to Vienna, he has this great success and he storms through Hungary, takes Buda, and yet he then seems to turn around and go home and sort of leave it, leave it there for the taking. Why? Why was that? I didn't get a strong sense of. Of why i, he I, don't, I, don't, it, I garrison just, didn't garrison and reinforced it. I don't know
0: why he did that, and I it, it slightly reminded me of of Putin when we were all doing will he? Won't he? And if he does, what will, what form will it take? When when the Ottoman army mustered, and it was a big operation because soldiers came in from all corners of the army, and then there were um, the river flotillas that needed to be mobilized. Whenever that happened, no one was quite sure where they were going to go and what the aim was. So to what extent Suleiman knew and to what extent his advisers knew precisely what the plan was, I simply we, we simply don't know. And so his objectives were also shrouded in kind of bluster and uh, intimidation. Uh, he, he went north having created this incredible crown, this remarkable piece of... Of metallurgy and and kind of jewelry that was so big he couldn't fit on he couldn't put it on his head because it would have it would have bent his neck and he went north on this sort of procession through ottoman lands of of Bulgaria and the Balkans, just to show how powerful and important he was and then that procession morphed into this major campaign to try and pin down Charles V in open battle but then but then we sort of come to the conclusion that he and Charles V were not that keen to meet in a pitched battle, because the stakes were simply so high. If if there was a chance of losing, then neither of them really wanted to meet in a pitched battle. And so there was a kind of sense in that, not in the the campaign that was thwarted at Vienna, but a subsequent one two years later that almost got to Vienna, where they kind of skirted around each other. They could have fought each other. They could have had the big, big battle to decide the future of the world. And in fact, they both decided that too much was at stake.
1: Well, that, that sense that there's a certain amount of kind of shadow boxing, and indeed, as you point out with the sort of fantastically kind of Janus faced Venice, that there's a lot of negotiation. I mean, this seems to me to complicate this idea of a kind of clash of civilizations and a clash, clash of religions. And some of these major players, you say you, you have them, you know, when they they'll suddenly be paying obeisance to Islam. But, you know, they stub their and It's the Virgin Mary they call out on. I mean, there are a lot of people who are riding two horses religiously. And how happy was Suleiman to accommodate that?
0: I think we're at the, we're, whether coincidentally or through a period, through a strange kind of osmosis, we are at a period where both in Christianity and in Islam, there is a move towards standardisation. There's a move towards setting down various parameters within which you need to sit in order to consider yourself this or that. And we're at that, the cusp of that moment in the first part of Suleiman's reign. And the old dispensation, which was, as you say, this extraordinary fluidity between the religious traditions, between faiths, and between political loyalties, still obtained. And that is what makes the characters so remarkable. The doge's son, Alvise Griti, who becomes a number three man in the empire, who is given Hungary to run for Suleiman, but at the same time is corresponding daily, almost on a daily basis with his father. The the Doge of Venice is is a sort of classic example of this. He never converted, he remained a Christian, but he would declare himself to be the devoted slave of the Sultan. He sold the Sultan tin and jewels and arms, and he sold Venice, saltpita, and Arab thoroughbreds, and, and you
1: name it, he was fantastically rich. Amazing wheeler-dealer, wasn't he? I mean, there's a there's a lovely moment early on when his father says, oh, look, come back home, you know, I'll give you a job. And he's having none of it because he's in the big leagues, isn't it? He?
0: No, he, his father doesn't quite understand just how wealthy he has become. And the wealth that the Ottoman Empire and its huge expanse offers is is, you know, off the scale compared to anything <laughs> that Venice can offer. So, and as you say, if you look at the, the, there's some great work that's been done by Turkish historians on the composition of of the galleys, the the pirate galleys that were ostensibly Muslim, ostensibly Turkish, but contained all sorts of renegades, sort of demi-Muslims, demi-Christians. And as you say, when the storm arose, if if their prayers to to Allah didn't yield any results, they'd
1: have a go with the Virgin Mary. Now this... The the Doge's son, Beoglu, as he's known. In the first place, what's his relationship with the number two, Ibrahim Pasha? Because both of them have sort of come from nowhere. They're kind of jockeying for position at the top of the world. Are they direct rivals or is the fact that he spends most of his time in Hungary keep them out of direct conflict? No, they're not direct
0: rivals because, because Alvisa never converts. So he's never in the running for a top job in the Ottoman Empire. In order to become a Pasha, you do have to be at least nominally a Muslim. And Alvisa never converts. He's also brought into uh, the inner circle by Ibrahim because Ibrahim in turn feels isolated when he becomes Grand Vizier and he needs an ally and he needs some help and also he needs money and he needs a a diplomatic kind of view on the world. He's an ingenue and he doesn't have a a kind of sense of the way that the the world is, is run and Alvise, who does have this sense because he comes from Venice because he went to university in Padua he knows the Italian scene exceptionally well he can provide that, and so they work in tandem for for a very long time, and Alvisa is never a threat to Ibrahim at the end it 's not so much Ibrahim who turns against Alvise as other members of the of the Turkish elite, particularly Barbarossa the the pirate and they start to sense that this guy is is, is constantly being disloyal, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. He claims to want the best for the Sultan, but in fact he's working for the doge. And at that stage the relationship between the Ottomans and Venice starts to deteriorate and Alvisa finds himself caught in a very uncomfortable position in the middle.
1: And he does come to a pretty sticky
0: end, doesn't he? He does. In 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 Hungary he essentially raises the flag of rebellion against against the sultan without being quite so overt. The sultan suspects him of gross disloyalty. He has his own army. He heads off into Hungary, which is ostensibly his kind of fief, But the Hungarians hate him because of his extortionate behaviour and cruel behaviour, and they rise against him in Transylvania. And again, we have a lot of eyewitness reports of, of how Alvi Zagritti met his end after a, after a um, dramatic siege.
1: That's bad luck with sieges throughout the book, actually, isn't it's the, the Sultan didn't sieges weren't his thing really. Can I also ask just briefly to go back, another of the people who came from nowhere and became immensely powerful is the woman who became the Sultan's wife. And I mean only after the death of the death of his mother when that became possible. But he's unusual in that he's he's more or less more or less kind of monogamous for much of his career. Tell me a little about his about his love life and and the implications of that within the court because it's, it's not a small side issue entirely, is it?
0: It's not a small side issue at all any more than um, Henry VIII's activities in the bedroom are. It's absolutely vital for the for the perpetuation of the dynasty, and what the Ottomans do by the time of Suleiman is that they they allow the they encourage the Sultan to father as many children as possible from various different concubines. No concubine is allowed to give birth to more than one male potential heir to the throne. And she is sent off to look after that boy and to raise him on the expectation that one day he and his siblings, he and his brothers will fight it out. And where Hurrem Sultan, who is known in the West as Roxolana and became extremely well known even in her lifetime, where she differs from these other concubines is that she manages to get her claws into into Suleiman and really capture his heart and there seems to have been and we can sense that from the letters that have survived there seems to have been a deep affection between them as well as an, an a, a great sexual attraction because they just keep having children and so she gives out son and daughter son and daughter one after the other whenever he's at home he's he's siring another child and that Places her in a very a different position to the usual concubine, and there is a scene described by the Venetian ambassador where she has a showdown with one of these other concubines, and she decisively wins that showdown through a combination of guile and intelligence, and also because um Suleiman is 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 genuinely in love with her. When Suleiman's mother dies, who had never been honoured with the with the position of of. Selim's wife, Suleiman's father's wife. She was always a, a concubine. When that happens, Suleiman feels free to marry Huren. and so he marries her and he brings her into the into the new palace, where they can be very close to each other, both, you know, in 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 terms of affection, but also in terms of how they decide the way that the the empire is going to go. And when Ibrahim Pasha comes to his sticky end at the end of the Lion House, this is really the moment where Hurem Sultan will step step up and become the power behind the throne.
1: Yes, and briefly, I mean, sticky ends, since that's the subject we're on, can you sketch for our listeners how the in- process of inheritance and, as it were, of winnowing out the candidates tends to go? Because it's it's slightly like that thing of the, you know, sharks, children eating each other in utero, isn't it? I mean, being a being the number two son is is a dangerous thing to be
0: well there's a there's a wonderful scene where three of the where three of the sultan's able-bodied sons he has one who is a hunchback and is therefore out of the running but three of the able-bodied sons are circumcised and the it's it's the greatest ceremonial that Istanbul has ever witnessed there's another son slightly younger who is too young to join that ceremony and one of those sons is from another concubine run, and then two of them are from Purem, and what's remarkable is that this occasion of enormous joy, a huge display of wealth and confidence, is behind that lies the, the, the realisation that everyone watching will have had at the time, that these boys, these angelic boys who are being paraded around, will end up killing each other, and that is the way that the Ottoman succession is decided. It used to be decided in, in different ways, but Suleiman's great-grandfather, Mehmet the Conqueror, enshrined this in law that the that the, that the sultan was entitled to kill off rivals from within his family. So Selim the, Selim the Grim prepared the way extremely effectively for Suleiman because Selim the Grim killed his brothers and killed his nephews. So by the time Suleyman, Selim died, Suleiman was the only person who could have become sultan. And so there... If it goes well, then for all its ruthlessness, as a way of ensuring a smooth succession, it can do the job. But it can also encourage preemptive actions by sons who think they're going to be killed by their father, or by brothers who think that brothers are going to make a bid for the throne before the father has died. And so towards the end of Suleiman's life, the the whole attention of the state gets hijacked by this idea of of what's going to happen.
1: It's kind of absolutely staggering. I mean, there is a mention to go back to Selim the Grim, where he sends the young Suleiman a present, apparently, which is a, a coat full of poison.
0: Yes, it was a coat that had been, we think, steeped in poison or, or sprinkled with poison. And Hafsa, his mother, who knows Selim, her royal legion lover, better than anyone else, says, the son, I don't think you should try on that magnificent robe. I think we should give it to an attendant to try on. And the attendant tries it on and promptly promptly drops dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so when uh, on the few occasions that, that the grown-up Suleiman meets his father, I mean he's still pretty young when Selim dies, but you can just imagine just how fraught those <laughs> those occasions were, and <laughs> yes. how he really needed um, to pay his play his cards right in order to get out alive because. You know, Selim was the kind of guy who would execute his vizier for the crime of living too long. I mean, it was really—he—he—he he, he took no prisoners.
1: Yeah, I mean, this this coat was that intended as a sort of test, or a, a practical joke, or at the time, did he think you know, maybe maybe another son would be better? I
0: mean, we we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. One of the one of the accounts has it that the coat was sent by one of the pashas. But the account that I've chosen to follow, which is also a contemporary account, suggests that it was Selim himself. It would certainly have been in character.
1: (laughs) My dad's not that ruthless. Now, another sticky end, because the sticky ends in this book are so good. What was it that finally did for Ibrahim Pasha, which which is what brings this section of your story and and this volume to a close? He fell out with the money man?
0: He fell out with the money man, he fell out with the treasurer, who was his only real rival as a kind of real top-notch bureaucrat at the top of the empire, had a lot of money, He fell out with him. He was involved in a pretty disastrous campaign in Persia and Mesopotamia, in which a lot of soldiers had died, it was all a bit of a disaster, they got stuck in a snowstorm, a lot froze to death, Um, there was a terrible retreat over the Zagros Mountains into Mesopotamia. By that time, Suleiman, who hadn't started out on the campaign, had joined the campaign with his troops. And we surmise that Ibrahim is filling Suleiman's ears with, uh, with bile and poison concerning the treasurer, who also is the quartermaster, and saying, Who's to blame for this disaster? Well, it's not me, so it must be Iskender, the, the quartermaster. And so Suleiman does away with Iskender, and on the night, in Ramadan in Baghdad, which they have just taken when that happens. We have it on contemporary chroniclers' account that Suleiman is visited by Iskender in a dream. And Iskender, the quartermaster whom he has just unjustly executed, takes off his turban and wraps it round the reclining sultan's neck and pulls and pulls. And, and Suleiman wakes up from this dream and he takes a vow. He's not only full of remorse for having unjustly executed his quartermaster, but also he takes a vow that Ibrahim that will not live another year. And when Ibrahim is dispatched after a an invitation to dinner at the palace, an invitation to dinner and then to dine and then stay the night, it's by the, the usual method, which is strangling you in your bedchamber. And then he's taken across the water. His corpse is taken across the golden horn. He's buried in an unmarked grave. And this, I think, marks—it's uh, the end of
1: the Lion House. It's a shame I had to reveal it, but there we are. Oh, I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry. I assumed that, that anything that could be looked up on Wikipedia doesn't count as a spoiler, but uh... <laughs> but it's it, it sort of marks the moment where Suleiman
0: becomes his own man, and from then on, we find a more a more settled and a more assertive Suleiman, no longer a young man in awe of his courtier's uncertain as to how to handle them, but someone who is determined never, A, to have a Christian at the heart of his apparatus, like al and B, never to allow a Grand Vizier to achieve the power and longevity that Ibrahim Pasha achieved. And of course the main beneficiary is Hurem, his ex-consort, now wife, who is now in a
1: position to influence politics in a way she hasn't been able to do to date. So that, I hope, will be volume two. Christopher Beleg, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you so much. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.